Oxycodone was first synthesized in Germany from an opiate alkaloid called thebane, sometimes called paramorphine, which itself is an organic compound that can be derived from the poppy plant and serves as a constituent of opium. Thebane is a Class A drug in the United Kingdom, a controlled analog of a Schedule II drug in the United States, and considered to be a Schedule I substance in Canada. So although it's not a key drug unto itself throughout most of the world, it's a component of other more popular and widely disseminated drugs, and thus regulated pretty heavily just about everywhere such regulations exist. Oxycodone, which again was originally synthesized at the beginning of the 20th century in Germany from Thebane, was available on the market shortly after its initial derivation but didn't see widespread use until mid-1939, when it was introduced to the U.S. market, though it did become popular in a limited way throughout Europe in the 30s leading up to World War II, due to Nazi Germany's enthusiastic use of it on the battlefield as an analgesic, and it was especially well-suited for that task, because in addition to lessening the patient's perception of pain, it also triggered a state of euphoria, tranquilization, and anterograde amnesia, meaning those who were dosed with oxycodone after being injured would often forget, or at least forget the details and perceptual experience of, the thing that led to their injury, which could help, in some cases, with the psychological aspect of being seriously injured. Notes written by Adolf Hitler's personal physician, which were made public after the war, indicated that Hitler received frequent injections of oxycodone throughout the conflict, and other documents have shown that this drug and other similar opiates, opioids, and stimulants were used by soldiers and leaders throughout the ranks of the Nazi government and military, which wasn't entirely uncommon in other forces fighting in World War II conflicts, but none were as drugged up as the Nazis. They apparently perceived pharmacological tools as being key to both their military victory and their larger goal of building a better human being. Which from that perspective, and that early on in our scientific experience with such substances, makes a certain kind of sense. If you're trying to figure out how to optimize human beings and are not worried about the moral consequences of doing so, chemicals that allow you to ignore pain, get high, and become euphoric on command, and which buzz you to the gills so that you don't have to sleep for days on end without losing your ability to focus, at least for a while, probably seemed like paths worth investigating. Later, though, and this was something we were already aware of anecdotally from the use of these substances and earlier permutations of these substances in previous military conflicts, but also through their medicinal uses in non-military circumstances, later we were able to more formally understand the side effects of oxycodone and similar substances on the people who partake in them. 
alongside the analgesic and euphoric properties of oxycodone and the aforementioned amnesiac effects, it can also cause hyperventilation, insufficient breathing, basically, which can lead to an overabundance of carbon dioxide in a person's blood. It can lead to constipation, nausea, vomiting, itching, dizziness, dry mouth, intense sweating, an overwhelming sleepiness or drowsiness to the point where a person's ability to think and perceive are significantly diminished, a loss of appetite, nervousness and anxiety, gastrointestinal pain, diarrhea, the inability to urinate, a persistent shortness of breath, and in some rare cases, hiccups that won't go away no matter what you do. Most serious of the side effects brought on by oxycodone, though, is arguably the dependency that it can instill in those who use it for any amount of time. Because of the chemical manipulation this substance performs on the human body, folks who use it, even just once, can become chemically dependent on it. Their normal processes can be rewired, so when they no longer have it in their system, their bodies do not produce the right balance of chemicals to keep everything in fully functional, optimal, conscious, satisfied order. The consequence of this imbalance, which is more likely to occur in people who imbibe oxycodone on a regular basis and over time, is a very serious collection of withdrawal symptoms that can become debilitating. Such a dependence is common in people who use any kind of opioid, but because of how widespread and socially acceptable oxycodone and derivative medications became, withdrawal from this class of opioid has become something of a social plague from the mid-20th century onward, in large part because of the successful marketing of it by a U.S.-based pharmaceutical company called Purdue Pharma. What I'd like to talk about today is Purdue, the Sackler family, and an ongoing collection of lawsuits that they are attempting to settle, and why a collection of state governments are pushing back against that settlement attempt. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from NPR News, and it's entitled 24 States Mount Legal Fight to Block Sackler Bid for Opioid Immunity. The Purdue Frederick Company was founded in 1892 by John Purdue Gray and George Frederick Bingham, two medical doctors living in Manhattan in the U.S. state of New York and it operated in a generally undifferentiated way from most other pharmaceutical companies at the time, selling things like laxatives and earwax removers, until it was sold in 1952 to a pair of men who were also medical doctors, Raymond and Mortimer Sackler, and their older brother, Arthur Sackler, who was not a doctor and who would serve as a passive owner of this company as he was fully occupied with a collection of publishing and advertising world investments and ventures. Each of these three brothers owned one-third of this company. Under the Sackler brothers, the company expanded into other states, eventually relocating their home base of the business 
from Manhattan to Stamford, Connecticut, and part of that expansion was predicated on Arthur's introduction of new approaches to medical advertising. His efforts in other aspects of the ad and publishing space gave him a sense of how to sell things to people, and his innovations in both helped the company he shared with his brothers flourish, allowing them to introduce entirely new pharmaceutical categories and largely own those categories for a period of time. It also evolved the industry as a whole, forcing other such companies to compete in the same way, which in turn shaped the modern U.S. medical advertising space. And in many ways, this is what made it what it is today, which for those of you who do not live in the United States, means a whole lot of advertising to patients directly, so that they will then, hopefully, ask their doctors for specific medicines and treatments and in some cases even demand particular brands of those medicines and treatments because of the effectiveness and pervasiveness of all of this medical advertising, which was innovated by Arthur Sackler. By the 1960s, the Sacklers had built themselves a small empire of medical entities and brands, which allowed them to, in an internal, integrated way, without requiring any outside assistance, come up with a new drug concept, test that drug within a context that made favorable results a near certainty, both in the clinical tests and from doctors who conducted hospital-based trials, come up with ads for that drug, publish articles in medical journals that they published, which then might include those ads that they produced alongside the articles that they had written using doctors that were essentially on their payroll, officially or unofficially, before then planting articles on these new drugs in newspapers and magazines with which they had relationships because of their prominence within the advertising and publishing industries. This burgeoning empire then spread in an unusual asymmetric fashion through the Sacklers' enthusiasm for and support of the art world. The Sackler brothers donated $3.5 million to the Met, the Metropolitan Museum, which was the most prominent and well-known museum in New York in 1974, and that allowed them to both hold events and glad hand at this important cultural institution, but also allowed them to start putting their name on various wings and displays throughout the building. Their philanthropic efforts continued from there, growing larger and more expansive with time, almost always paired with the condition that the Sackler family name would need to be on prominent display wherever their donated money went, an often seemingly harmless addendum to these charitable contributions that nonetheless served to further promote the family's efforts and products, while in some cases also helping to protect them from regulations and laws that might have otherwise negatively impacted their livelihood. Those protections and that perception of their family and their brands were especially important from 1996 onward, that being the year that Purdue Pharma released a drug called OxyContin, a variation of oxycodone that utilized a controlled drug release system called Contin which allowed for a slower-release version of pain medicines that they already produced. In 1984, they had released a product called MS-Contin, 
which was a controlled release version of morphine, and in 1996, they released the aforementioned OxyContin, which was a slow-release version of their oxycodone product. The theory they utilized in developing these products is that morphine and oxycodone and similar substances could be highly addictive and thus were laden with all kinds of side effects if taken straight and all at once in a high dose. But if released more intentionally, more slowly over time, some of those downsides could be ameliorated while still delivering the same dose and all of the upsides, the euphoria, the pain-killing effect, the minor amnesia that can be somewhat desirable for people who are suffering in various ways. The real killer app behind OxyContin, though, was the advertising strategy that Arthur Sackler had innovated over the preceding decades, which had come to include, by this point, very aggressively courting and pushing doctors to prescribe the drug, even when they wouldn't have otherwise prescribed anything of the sort to their patients, rewarding and threatening and cajoling these doctors to ensure that the drug was distributed as widely as possible providing doctors with free trips to seminars, providing doctors with ridiculously high-paid speaking engagements, penalizing doctors who failed to prescribe enough doses, and enriching those who prescribed the most, no matter how they managed to reach those elevated prescription numbers. This drug was presented as a sort of miracle drug because it was highly effective at what it was supposed to do, ameliorating pain and it provided doctors, but also other people in the medical world, including the press that reported on such things, an excuse as to why they should spread the word about this seemingly entirely positive thing. Because of that time-release content technology, it was considered to be all upside. That was the narrative that was pushed anyway, and those who pushed it were rewarded, while those who pushed back against it including doctors who questioned it or attempted to publish studies showing potential downsides, and politicians who proposed regulations and further research that should be conducted by folks who were not biased by the money and prestige that they were receiving from the Sacklers' medical and media machine. They were all heavily penalized, both in terms of reputation and in terms of the monetary resources that they were then denied. It eventually became clear that in addition to the addictive nature of this drug, even when it was time-released in this way, a lot of patients were abusing it because they eventually needed higher doses to keep dealing with their chronic pain, or because they began to experience withdrawal symptoms even after using it for a relatively short period of time, and that often led to either abuse of more serious illegal drugs or off-label utilization of OxyContin itself. People came up with ways to remove the content coating, or they would crush the drug, snort it, inject it, or otherwise figure out ways to get a full dose all at once rather than over time, which then further exacerbated their addictions, making it even more likely that these pain patients would become addicts. In the year 2000, researchers found that OxyContin was one of the most abused pain medications on the market, and that research was sponsored by Purdue. So they were aware of this data at that point, even if they did not publicize it. 
In 2012, a study found that 76% of people seeking help for heroin addiction had initially become addicted after abusing prescription painkillers, most commonly OxyContin. During that period, the late 1990s through the mid-20-teens, a slew of investigations and studies found links between OxyContin's formulation, but also, and even more so, its marketing and the incentive programs used by Purdue, which were later refined and evolved by the consulting company McKinsey, which recommended that their client, Purdue, offer rebates to pharmacies based on the number of overdoses and addictions that they tallied, which then created some new and very toxic incentives in the market for this drug. So as OxyContin became a true statistical gateway drug, these advertising pushes and incentive programs made it a blockbuster drug, bringing in nearly $3 billion for Purdue from 1995 until 2001, with cumulative revenues of $35 billion by 2017. Purdue has dealt with numerous lawsuits related to OxyContin and other similar drugs that it created and marketed in this way over the years. And that's actually the case for most drug companies specializing in any sort of substance. But the pace of lawsuits aimed in their direction stepped up from 2004 onward, beginning with a lawsuit in West Virginia that claimed Purdue had engaged in deceptive marketing because the drug, if taken as prescribed, did not prevent pain as advertised which often then resulted in patients using it in off-label ways, which could then lead to dependence, addiction, and the abuse of it and other drugs. Purdue settled that lawsuit for $10 million, that money going to programs that discouraged drug abuse, but with the caveat that all of the evidence used in the case would remain sealed and confidential. In 2007, Purdue pled guilty to misleading the public about the risk of addiction inherent in using OxyContin, which led to a $600 million settlement by the company and a few to tens of millions of dollars paid out by individuals in positions of power within the company due to criminal charges that they faced separately from, but parallel to, that larger $600 million case against Purdue. The dominoes slowly began to fall from there, as state leaders, especially those where the opioid crisis was most pressing and prominent, began to launch lawsuits against Purdue and members of the Sackler family, which owned it, most of which were settled and most of which were worth millions or tens of millions of dollars, but some of which drifted into the hundreds of millions of dollar range, which is objectively a lot of money but in the context of a drug that earns the company and this family tens of billions of dollars is arguably a relative drop in the bucket. By August of 2019, Purdue and the Sacklers found themselves targeted by a suit that would potentially require that they settle for more than $10 billion plus a Chapter 11 filing by Purdue, which means essentially declaring bankruptcy and the company would then be restructured as a public beneficiary trust, the Sacklers completely removed from ownership and power within the company. 
This settlement offer was floated by the Sacklers as it would ostensibly allow them to settle more than 2,000 outstanding lawsuits that they might otherwise have to face individually. And it would allow them to lump all of those lawsuits together in a way that would potentially allow them to take a big hit all at once, but then, from that point forward, be immune to all future lawsuits of that kind and any lawsuits and charges connected to the opioid crisis in general in the future. And at this point, their connection to OxyContin and the opioid crisis was being made more overt. The family's reputation and legacy threatened by this connection to a burgeoning scandal. And that connection is in part the result of protests conducted by a handful of organizations that had been holding demonstrations in public places, like at the Met and in other such institutions. Any place that had the Sackler name attached to displays, events, and so on. And these demonstrations were often quite successful. The Sackler name was being pulled off of these monuments to their charitable activities on an almost weekly basis for a while there. By mid-September of 2019, Purdue had filed for bankruptcy after a tentative settlement was reached with the collection of 2,000 mostly state and city governments that wanted to sue them, though many of these entities didn't want to be part of that lump-sum settlement and claimed that the Sacklers were hiding a lot of their wealth in offshore accounts. So the argument being made was that the previously floated $10 billion settlement was not punishment enough because the family was wealthier than they seemed to be, and much of that wealth was not invested in Purdue at all. And that assertion would seem to have been proven accurate, as a December 19 audit found that the Sackler family withdrew $10.7 billion from Purdue soon after the company was targeted by the lawsuits leading up to that massive settlement soft proposal. So they basically took as much money from the company as possible, hid a bunch of it away where it couldn't be officially found or documented, then casually offered up a potential settlement deal that seemed bigger than it was because it was predicated on their publicly visible wealth and the supposed value of a company that they had recently strip-mined for resources that they then hid away. Looping back around to that NPR article then, we have 24 states that are attempting to block the Sackler family's proposed deal, which would in effect end all of these outstanding lawsuits and all potential future lawsuits that are in a similar vein for a renegotiated cost of $4.2 billion, which they would pay as a family, alongside the control that they would give up over Purdue. So less than half of that originally floated amount, but for the same intended outcome. The argument being made by this group that does not agree with this settlement is that this family has still, even after such a payout, profited massively from the opioid epidemic that they helped create an epidemic that has led to the deaths of nearly half a million people in the United States over the past few decades, and which has severely damaged many communities, families, and individuals who now suffer from addiction that they acquired while trying to get relief from pain through legal, seemingly legitimate means that this company pushed. 
They're also saying that this family is attempting to use and benefit from the powers of bankruptcy without actually being bankrupt. The Sacklers want the protections afforded to those who have nothing while maintaining the vast majority of their wealth. In the words of the Massachusetts Attorney General, Maura Healy, spoken during an interview with NPR, quote, the bankruptcy system should not be allowed to shield non-bankrupt billionaires. It would set a terrible precedent. If the Sacklers are allowed to use bankruptcy to escape the consequences of their actions, it would be a roadmap for other powerful bad actors, end quote. The component of the bankruptcy laws that the Sacklers are attempting to use as part of this deal, which is called non-consensual third-party releases, is exceedingly rarely applied and quite controversial, and would in practice protect their personal wealth and assets from any future lawsuits linked in some way to the opioid crisis. Wealth that is estimated, based on public records, to be in the neighborhood of $11 billion, but which is perhaps far more than that because of the aforementioned overseas holdings, of which there is reason to believe they have made enthusiastic use. There's also some controversy here over the idea that federal courts could prevent future state and local lawsuits by simply declaring that some family is no longer targetable by such lawsuits, that they are off-limits forever. This deal would basically allow a federal bankruptcy court to make a grand deal with the Sackler family, and then as part of that deal, tell state courts and city courts and indigenous territory courts and all of these other smaller entities that want to sue the Sacklers that they can't, because that federal court has already made a deal on their behalf, against their will. It's not at all clear that this is a legal, not to mention desirable, outcome and there's a good chance that if this precedent is set, a slew of other wealthy families and powerful corporations will figure out how to use it to make themselves immune to all future consequences of the dangerous and harmful things that they've done, or might do, at some point. The next court hearing for the Sackler family on this issue has been set for May 12, 2021, so we will maybe see at that point, which direction the wind will blow on this individual case. But also, and arguably more importantly, we might get a sense of what precedent it will set for similar cases in the future. The book that I'd like to recommend today is actually super topical to this episode. The book is called Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty by author Patrick Radden Keefe. Reading this book was actually the impetus for doing this episode, and it is incredibly well-researched, incredibly thorough, does a good job of sharing the roundness of the characters. The Sacklers are not these universal villains, and in fact, they've done some very important and positive things for the world. It's just that the way things are structured now tends to have a lot of deleterious outcomes for society, and this book is very well investigated and researched and does a very good job of presenting some of the complexity of that system that they've set up 
but also how a lot of their decisions have then led to incredibly negative ramifications for a large number of people, especially in the United States, but also worldwide. If you're keen to learn more about this story and more about the cast of characters involved in it, consider picking up a copy of Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keefe. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. And you can subscribe to my newsletter, One Sentence News, where I curate and summarize the news every weekday at onesentencenews.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.